0: Welcome to the second season of Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by the community of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. Civica unites eight leading European higher education institutions to create the next generation European University. One of the primary goals of Civica is to connect these eight universities to promote the exchange of knowledge and resources for the European common good. In the second season, we zoom into Civica's research focus areas. For Civica, research is one of the key instruments to achieve its long-term goal of creating shared European knowledge. Thanks to the newly launched project Civica Research, the Lions will continue to deepen its collaborations in research around these major areas. We talk to researchers and faculty members from the eight Civica partner universities to bring you cutting-edge European research in social sciences. I'm your host, Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. The European Union is an ever-evolving institution and governance system. The institution evolves in response to political, economic and social circumstances in the Union. This process of institutional evolution has been happening since the inception of the institution. In this episode, we evaluate how two prominent ongoing circumstances are shaping the EU, the EU's response to the pandemic and the rule of law backsliding in some of the Member States. In the past year, the global pandemic has presented great challenges that tested governance systems and their capacities across the world. And the EU was not an exception to this. The pandemic has presented the EU with great challenge of coordinating economic as well as health responses across its member states. While the pandemic was the main focus of governments, the EU also had to deal with eroding democracy in its backyard. Hungary and Poland have continuously breached fundamental values of the EU for quite some time now and they have continued to do so in the last year. The issue of the rule of law poses a great threat to the EU institutions. In this episode, I speak to two experts to understand the impact of the pandemic on the EU and how the issue of rule of law is changing the EU on the pandemic and its impact, I speak with Carlo Altamonte, an associate professor of Economics of European Integration at Bocconi University. He has also worked closely with European Central Bank and Italian governments. Okay, let's start with the very first question. Could you please briefly give us overview of what is happening in the EU since the pandemic? Possibly touch upon major policy initiatives and major challenges that has happened in the last few months.
1: Well, the pandemic, uh, as hit the EU at the moment in which we were about to start, uh, the transformation of our economy. We were finally coming out of uh, the sovereign debt crisis, uh, which took us uh, probably too long and too much to overcome. We were having a good five years. The stint of the Juncker Commission from 2014 to 2019 was characterized by a recovery of demand in Europe, a recovery of investment, historically high employment levels, and also a general good degree of confidence of citizens to the point that the European elections of June 2019, which were supposed to bring a wave of sovereignism to the European Parliament, didn't materialize into such an outcome because of the undisputable economic successes that the European model was able to achieve over the last five years. However, it was pretty clear at the time that that European model was about to change because that European model was based on the strength of European industrial exports. And the ability of the rest of the world to absorb those exports, notably in the U.S., and the start of the tariff war between U.S. and China, was started to be put under under threat, under discussion. Moreover, it was also clear that the EU needed a, a boost in terms of innovation uh, technology, both on the digital side and on the energy and green transition side. So at the time we were starting to take the occasion of the new European institutions having been elected in 2019, to start working on the change of the European model in terms of digital technological green revolution, and also to start assessing one other important element, the emergence of populism and sovereignism in Europe, notably in Italy, but also in France, and to a certain extent also in Germany and, and Spain. It was clear at the time that the European election 2019 In the end, it went fairly well, but we couldn't give it for granted that this situation would have been forever there, especially if uh, these five years would have been characterized by slower economic uh, activity. Then uh, the pandemic hit uh, and everything changed uh, all of a sudden. Europe was uh, faced uh, with the choice of either stepping up the level of integration, support and solidarity among member states, uh, while preserving uh, the same need for a change that was already started to be addressed in 2019, all risking of being materially dissolved, not only by the economic consequences of the pandemic that would have left certain member states unable to face alone the the brunt of the crisis, but also politically, because clearly if Europe, under this new challenge, would have reacted again, uh, like in the previous crisis, uh, with, say, selfishness, where every member state uh, was left alone uh, to face the crisis, with limited or too much delayed uh, level of solidarity. Then, clearly, European citizens have started to ask, uh, what type of public goods uh, the European model was supposed to produce, if under those circumstances uh, those public goods would have not. Fortunately, uh, the European institutions have have learned from the mistakes of the financial crisis. And there is one piece of evidence that that tells me this. In 2008, uh, when the Lehman uh, crisis uh, hit uh, the European economy, the Federal Reserve took around uh, Two months to come up with an unprecedented and completely novel monetary policy response, starting quantitative easing in mid November 2008 after the September crisis. Europe took six years from November 2008 to November 2014 to come up with the same strategy of quantitative easing. And in the meantime, there were a debt crisis. There was Greece, there was Portugal, there was Ireland, there was Spain, and to a certain extent, also Italy. When the crisis hit in March uh, 2020, when financial markets start to collapse again, the Federal Reserve in early March, responded again with an unprecedented round of monetary policy expansion in a series of decisions taken literally hours, one after the other, as soon as the situation was evolving. That was taken between Sunday and Monday of the second week of March. On Monday night, the European Central Bank convened an extraordinary meeting of the governing council and announced uh, a similar package of monetary policy expansion to tackle the European crisis. So it took six years to the ECB to respond uh, to the financial crisis, while it took less than six hours to respond in 2020. From six years to six hours is uh, what really changed, if you want, in the ability of Europe to learn from its own mistake and provide a, a response. Why am I focusing on the monetary policy solution, because once the monetary policy solution was there, then it was clear that the member state had the ability to start increasing their level of debt to face the crisis at the national level. Then it became also clear that it was not enough. And a few months after that, the second big political achievement, the concrete solidarity that Robert Schumann always called for in his uh, founding statement, appeared, and uh, the The next generation EU agreement was born, which starts to introduce concrete solidarity because this creates transfers from richer to poorer member states, from less to more severely hit member states. I think every citizen has uh, touched with his own hands that this is, if you want, a concrete sign of, of solidarity.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, that was a very helpful answer. But I would like to ask you, what would be your assessment of the EU's response to the pandemic compared to the member states? What do you think are the challenges and what are the successes uh, of EU in response to the economic as well as the health issues related to pandemic?
1: Overall, assessment is uh, for sure positive, with some, if you want, uh, more shadowy areas. The first area is the fact that, as usual, Europe started, if you want with a certain sluggishness in providing the response, not much from the monetary side, because that was, as I said, clearly understood by the European Central Bank. But on the fiscal side, we do the monetary framework at the European level, but we leave member states, uh, as usual, alone in running their own fiscal policy. And it became clear after a few months into the pandemic that this this was no shock that was going to fade away very soon, And therefore, we had to put up the agreement on on the recovery plan. But even when the agreement was made at the European Council in July last year, it took us one full year to agree on the recovery plans. And what we are now discussing is something that has not happened yet. I mean, we are talking about a package of fiscal stimulus, which is comparable to the size of the U.S. package. But first of all, it has not been deployed yet while the U.S. is already deploying it. And second, the deployment of this package is going to take place uh, over several years rather than all at the same time as it is taking place in the U.S. So for sure, there is some sluggishness, some lack of dynamism on the fiscal side where we still have to do additional steps in the process of European integration if we want to live up to the challenge of delivering the public goods Digital and green transition and infrastructure, cohesion, social issues, education and health. So that means that these are the legitimate needs of the European citizens and that there is really a European demos. There is an average European citizen that has the same need and therefore the government have to provide the same type of answers. But if the government have to provide the same type of answers, it makes perfect sense to step up. The level of provision of these public goods at the European level. This last year has shown us that with this sluggishness, we probably need to react uh, quicker. There has been a lot of, let's say, controversy also around uh, the vaccination campaign. Even in that case, we started very slow uh, compared to, for example, the UK or the US. And there have been a lot of criticism, although now the situation is much improved. And we are now at the trajectory of vaccination and a rate of vaccination, which is higher than uh, the UK Uh, or the U.S. But let me be very clear on this. First of all, what Europe has done uh, with the vaccination campaign is something that goes well beyond the mandate of the treaties because there is no competence in theory on health. But Europe had to do this because can you imagine if every member state would have gone on its own way trying to secure for itself vaccines one against the other? It would have been political chaos with the risk of severe scars, political scars on the continent, especially for those member states that are objectively in a weaker Position to secure for themselves enough scale economies in terms of vaccination. The other issue in the vaccination campaign is related to the fact that we bet on different technologies. One of them completely untested before, mRNA, so Pfizer and Moderna, and then we had the adenovirus, which was relatively new, with AstraZeneca, and the retrovirus with Johnson and Johnson. So it made perfect sense to have the three different technologies available under the radar screen. Now, one of these technologies proved to be true uh, and, and good, so the AstraZeneca, but the supplier was unable to secure for us uh, the quantities that uh, were promised in terms of delivery, at least in the first phase. Uh, that created shortages, but also it created the possibility for Europe to opt out from the commitments that Europeans have made towards developing countries. I want to be... Very clear on this point. Europe has never in any moment of the vaccination campaign gave up the commitment within the COVAX alliance to the developing countries. We have always exported at least 30% of our supply of vaccines, even when there was shortage in the European Union, to the developing economies. The UK and the US, until June, have exported zero. I repeat, zero. Zero at the expenses of poorest people in the other parts of the world. Frankly, I don't want to win that much. I prefer to have delays on Europe, but being consistent with my promises to help the rest of the world, rather than come later and say, ah, we had a success. Yes, on the shoulder of whom? You should ask this question
2: to yourself.
0: Thank you very much. We often talk about the inefficiency or lack of the speed in in European decisions, whether it's about recovery fund, whether it is about the vaccination. Let's a little bit focus on the recovery fund. Recovery fund is a very new policy where EU takes common debt for the very first time. This has potential to change the whole EU structure as as a whole. Would you like to touch upon the motivation behind the recovery fund, whether this is only going to be once, uh, considering the crisis we are going through, or this this is an evolving policy which might change EU permanently?
1: This is the most important question about when we think about the future of Europe and the stability of the European economic framework in the future. There are two historical novelties behind uh, the, the next generation EU. The first one is that for the first time, we use European money to counter uh, a a cyclical shock. Insofar, we have always used uh, European money to tackle structural problems, so things that do not depend on on the economy, on the business cycle, on the level of the GDP. For the first time, instead, uh, we step up the, the fiscal toolbox of the European Union and we say that only monetary policy was used as a proper economic policy tool, counter-cyclical tool. And for the first time, we use also fiscal policy in a counter-cyclical way, funding and transferring resources to the member states so that they can sustain the recovery on the one hand and the resilience, so the higher growth rate. This is more structural as a policy, but the first uh, motivation is uh, the immediate recovery from from the crisis, so a cyclical response. And this is the first uh, historical novelty. The second historical novelty is that we use European debt to fund this as it makes sense because we are now in a slowdown phase. So we borrow now that we have to invest more and we repay later. And for the first time, we use European debt at this magnitude. So here we are definitely hitting the market. The European Commission is becoming a, a new issuer of sovereign debt for the next four or five years. It's like... A new Spain has emerged on financial markets issuing a AAA debt. Like with the quantitative easing monetary policy, when it was told we're going to do it for a little while and then we are going to come back. And now we hear that this is a make of uh, monetary policy making. And uh, we have seen how hard it is to dismantle the quantitative easing. I don't think you can go from five years from now and say to the financial market, you know what, there was a joke, there is no more. AAA public debt on the market, because the market would have been used to that. The market might even use this AAA European debt as the new risk-free asset and start uh, setting relative prices in the financial market relative to this level of debt. We start thinking at the spread in terms of the European debt, not maybe the boom. So that calls for a reform of the fiscal framework in Europe, where not only, of course, we have to fine-tune the rules on deficit and debt, to update and make them more consistent with the current framework that we are going to have uh, in the post-pandemic context. But it also will pave the way for the creation of a, of a tool uh, of, of fiscal capacity for the European Union. The budget at the European level, that can counter uh, cyclical crisis and can help countries that are under phases of downturn or if provide those type of European public goods that makes sense to provide at the european level rather than at the national level it will be of paramount importance when we start the next year the discussion on the reform of the fiscal framework to start incorporating into these discussions also the what's next after next generation eu not necessarily the same type of tool a next generation eu is extraordinary because it has to answer to an extraordinary circumstances. But creating some tool that allows EU, if and ever the needs arises, to have some fiscal capacity, therefore telling to the market that these European emissions will always be there in order to cope with the the demand of European public goods is going to be a a fundamental feature of European policy making. It would also balance quite naturally the, the monetary policy side Because otherwise, we would have only one tool uh, of common economic policy, which is the monetary side, which will, in any case, sooner or later, also have required the need of taking into account the fiscal position of countries. So we will slowly evolve towards a model that economists call fiscal dominance of monetary policy, where the decisions of the European Central Bank are not necessarily determined only by the need to fight inflation, but also the need to keep under control the level of debts in the European states. But this is not correct nor efficient.
0: Thank you very much for the detailed answer. One of the key aspects of a recovery fund is that the EU takes the common debt and it transfers the part of the debt. The amount is different for different countries. And in turn for that, EU, in a way, asks promises to make structural changes. This becomes a tool to also implement EU policies, like better way of propagating the EU integration. What do you think about this way of diplomacy and how this is going to change the EU integration? Having a fiscal capacity, what does this mean for EU integration?
1: the NGU
0: is a quantum
1: leap forward in a way in the process of European policymaking because for the first time we touch upon a very close interest of citizens. Think about Germany and Italy. Germany pays net 75 billion euros roughly and Italy receives net around 30, 35. So in a way we are transferring for once resources from German taxpayers to Italian taxpayers. That, of course, has two consequences. On the one hand, it has to be very clear that the German citizen will receive a benefit in exchange. And the benefit is the fact, as you already mentioned, that if this money is properly used, this will contribute to the entire European continent to move forward at better speed, a higher growth rate with higher political power. And in the end, you can consider this as an investment the German citizens are making on the European continent being a a factor of success, growth, uh, political uh, progress, and so on. On the shoulder of those who receive the money, for example, the Italians, this puts an enormous responsibility because you're receiving as a grant, not your money, not European money, but if you want, the money of uh, Germany, the Netherlands, or Austria, just to mention those who are net contributors to the fund. Therefore, you have to accept that this money comes with strings attached and the strings attached are that you behave properly, that you do the reforms that you have not done in so far, and that in a way have prevented your country, but in general the entire European Union, not to grow at the pace that it would have been desirable, and to contribute, coordinating to the, to the to the creation of European public goods. The recovery and resilience facility is a super political instrument because it touches upon money that could have been in your pocket and is not in your pocket. If you're German, this is money that was not in your pocket and now is in your pocket. It's of paramount importance that you show to the German that this money is used in a proper way so that you have made a good investment six years from now. And you make sure that the Italian understands that this money is not his money. This is a challenge, a a political challenge, because if we don't live up to this challenge, there could be also serious uh, democratic consequences. At the next European election, people will be very mad at how we have used European money. Uh, Italians or Spaniards have used European money. And on the other side, uh, uh, Italians or Spaniards probably see that this money has not been that helpful, so why all these strings attached to the money if, in the end, they don't work in the way you want it? It's a political quantum leap forward. It would oblige all of us to start thinking that we are in the same boat and we have to row in the same direction.
0: Thank you very much. That is uh, very helpful to understand this. But moving on, I would like to ask about one of the projects you have been involved in. You have been involved in uh, developing the course, The Future of the EU, which is offered ac- across the Civica universities. Would you like to talk about why is it necessary to discuss the future of the EU with the students and why this is important when the EU continuously changes politically, economically and generally, even in its identity?
1: We thought that we are now ready to start discussing together at the European level, this type of debate across our universities. So we took the most important social sciences universities in Europe, part of the Civic Alliance, Hertie, Sciences Po, LSE, Bocconi, Stockholm School of Economics, Central European Universities, NSPA, and European University Institute. And we thought that if we really want to live up to this higher challenge that the next generation EU puts on our shoulder, the next generation has to be made aware of the challenges that are there. And it has to be made aware in a European way. First of all, being exposed to the breadth of knowledge of our best social universities. So design a course that is multi-campus, where there are lectures given by the most prominent faculty in the different universities through experts in their field, taking advantage also of something that we learned during the crisis, that is uh, online lecturing, which would have been probably weird two years ago, but now is perfectly normal. And this is the first part of the course, so the lecture part. But then there is a second part of the course, that is the Capstone Project. You work in groups, six students of at least three different campuses on a European policy challenge. And uh, the policy challenges and uh, the topics of the course are obvious. Uh, These are globalization, the digital transition, the green transition, and the democratic challenge. Within globalization, of course, we will touch upon not only economic issues, but also health, immigration, for example. And then in the group you. Take a challenge, how to secure, for example, the implementation of a carbon tax in Europe or how to deal with uh, the new immigration policy at the European level, or how to make sure that the recovery fund doesn't create a political backlash if not properly used. You come up with a policy paper. In the policy paper, what is important is how you write, because if you have to write this policy paper in groups of different nationalities across different campuses, this mimics precisely the type of European debate that we have every day in Brussels, where people from different countries, from different cultures, from different institutions, but with the same needs in terms of public goods, as we said before, have to provide sound answers. I think there can be no more uh, good time to this uh, course. We brought up at the European level monetary policy, we brought up at the European level fiscal policy. I think we have to start bringing up higher education also at that European level. And this is the first uh, attempt in this sense, and to what I can see, top quality attempt.
0: Thank you very much. That sounds like a very interesting course. Professor Altamonte gave us an overview of the performance of the EU during the pandemic and how the pandemic might shape the EU in the coming years. To talk about the next critical issue for the EU, the rule of law, I talked to Kebor Halmai. Professor Halmai is a professor of constitutional law at the European University Institute. Among others, he has previously worked as the chief advisor to the president of the Hungarian Constitutional Court. So rule of law has been a big issue in the EU recently. Would you use a start by explaining what is the issue here? What does one mean when, when we talk about the rule of law issue?
2: Rule of law is a pretty complicated term, although it can be simply saying that rule of law means how the state power is constrained in order to secure and guarantee freedom of the citizens in a country. Most importantly, it is about legal certainty, about legal security, about judicial independence in a country. But on the other hand, one can say that, that rule of law is certainly not something which deals only with the compliance with whatever law you have in a country. It certainly relates to the democratic design of a certain state, uh, including uh, fundamental rights being guaranteed in that legal system. In other words, rule of law, democracy, and fundamental rights, which are entrenched in Article 2 of the European Treaty, are related to each other. There is no rule of law without having a democracy, And there is no democracy without the rule of law. And none of them can be working without fundamental rights being guaranteed and provided by the state.
0: Thank you very much. But can you elaborate on what is exactly happening in the EU regarding rule of law? Why is this issue such an important issue for the EU right now?
2: If you consider the EU not only as an economic community, but also as a value community, as it has been started with the European Treaty. Previous provisions currently, Article 2 of the Treaty, emphasises those basic values. Among them, the rule of law, democracy, fundamental rights, protection of minorities and other basic values, which should be complied with by all the member states. As you know, during the accession procedure, there is a requirement for all candidate countries to comply with those values as well as other detailed rules of of the EU. These are the so-called Copenhagen criteria, which every member state has to fulfill when there is a decision on accession. Unfortunately, and this is probably because the EU did not expect any member states not to comply later on during their membership with those values, that there is no real mechanism to check whether member states still comply with the original values. There are certainly procedures and legal tools to force member states to comply. But original expectation was that that all member states are willing to join this community because they want to share the values, and they already have those values in place in their given legal and constitutional systems.
0: So what happens now? How effective have the measures taken so far? Would you just briefly elaborate on that?
2: There are certain traditional tools on the disposal of the EU for certain non-compliance issues. Again, no one expected systemic non-compliance. But the EU has set certain tools to force member states to comply. One of the most important ones is infringement procedure. So if a member state violates certain rules and infringement procedure is started, this is a relatively effective tool to force the member state to to comply. The normal kind of procedure is between the the commission and the member state to settle those kind of disputes and by the commission to convince the member states to comply but if this is not the case the commission can turn to the european court of justice to investigate the case and make a ruling on non-compliance and legally bind the member state for compliance This is a relatively effective tool for minor non-compliance violations of EU law. The question is what happens if member states start to systematically violate EU law? So not only violating certain provisions of X laws in the EU legal system, but systematically dismantling, for instance, judicial independence altogether in the country. Frankly speaking, those instruments are not really designed for these systemic violations. But there is an instrument which is more serious, called it as a nuclear option. This is Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union, which allows member states to be investigated for those kind of systemic violations of even principles, not only specific laws mentioned in Article 2 of the treaty, like judicial independence or non-discrimination against minorities and so on. Article 7 hasn't been used for many, many years. The first use was against Poland in 2017, when the Commission triggered Article 7 because of the violation of judicial independence in the country, packing the constitutional court first and then dismantling the independence of ordinary courts. The second subject of Article 7 procedure has been Hungary which, by the way, started uh, this kind of backsliding much earlier than Poland, practically since 2010, while the Polish saga of rule of law backsliding started after 2015, when the current government came to power. Despite these differences, the first procedure of Article 7 was triggered against Poland, followed by the Hungarian Article 7 procedure in 2018, by the European uh, Parliament. And despite the fact that those those procedures have been started, nothing really happened. The procedure is still going on. No serious consequences has yet measured, neither against Poland nor against Hungary. And if you ask me whether this is because of the lack of proper instruments in the disposal of the European Parliament, I would say no, because these are very harsh measures up until a sanction to strip the member states' voting rights in the European Council. As I said, the procedure hasn't gone so far to strip the voting rights. Not even proper or effective hearings has been held in the case of Hungary and Poland. Why? In my view, because the lack of political willingness to go seriously against these violations and really punish those non-compliant member states. Thank you
0: very much. So rule of law is just one of the issues. If you look at the other uh, issues regarding the Poland or uh, Hungary, you see human rights violation against LGBTQ community. You see a lot of other issues that are in contradiction with the basic fundamental values of the EU why the EU mechanism hasn't been effective? The EU is contradicting itself by not
2: going ahead with the rule of law issues. Again, I think that this is mostly a political issue and not a legal issue. I'm not arguing that there is a lack of legal tools in the possession of the EU. I have also to add that since 2018, there is an additional tool to influence those non-compliant member states with financial sanctions. A new regulation has been introduced in the end of 2018 by the so-called regulation of rule of law conditionality, meaning connecting the violation of rule of law principles and values to providing EU funds. Because in the last 10 years, in the case of Hungary, or in the last five years, In the case of Poland, it has been clear that those governments won't comply just because the European Commission institutions are claiming that you are not within the value community. They do not understand the language of that value speech. So the idea was probably they will understand the language of the money. European funds are crucial in those two countries as well as in other new member states from East Central Europe for their economic development. In the case of Hungary, the EU money uh, is about 6% of the growth in the country. So without that EU money, you cannot have that growth, which means that the current government won't be that successful. The EU introduced this new measure, the regulation, in December 2018. Unfortunately, with A lot of compromises. Again, those compromises are related to this kind of political nature of the issue and the political lack of willingness to seriously go after those violations. Let me just mention that the original version of this regulation contemplated to go after serious rule of law violations of principles. At the very end of the compromise, it became a kind of protection of the EU budget. So all the sanctions have been tied to certain EU financial interests and not necessarily linked to direct violation of, for instance, fundamental rights. You just mentioned the issue of LGBT people, both in Poland and Hungary, but maybe the Hungarian homophobic law, which has been enacted by the Hungarian Parliament, is a case in point saying that those kind of major fundamental rights violations cannot be re-sanctioned on the basis of this regulation because that's not necessarily tied to the financial interest of the EU. You can try to circumvent somehow these issues and finally the EU seems to be committed to go after Hungary's outrageous homophobic law by saying even if it's not directly touches upon the the mentioned interest of the EU, if you do not have independent judiciary, you cannot have a system of distributing EU money. This is a kind of backway solution, but at least the EU seems to be committed to do something against such a grave violation of fundamental rights, even though the toolkit is not designed to to deal with those issues. This was the case after more than 10 years of grave violations of fundamental rights in Hungary. And suddenly the EU realized with this homophobic law that something is happening which is gravely wrong in a member state.
0: Thank you very much. Very interesting answer. The recently introduced recovery fund also kind of ties up the financial incentives with the EU treaties and values and other uh, policy initiatives by the EU. Uh, Again, as you were saying, they're not fully uh, comprehensive and effective, considering the fact that how grave these issues are. What would you recommend in terms of the policy mechanisms, in terms of the implementation, in terms of political will? What would you recommend
2: for the EU? So again, I don't think that this is a legal problem. Of course, legal toolkits are instrumental to solve those issues. But without a political commitment and willingness to solve those issues, you can have all the possible toolkits not used, which has happened in the last 10 years in the case of Hungary and more than five years in the case of Poland. Both the recovery fund and the usual EU funds related to the regulation can be withdrawn without any major difficulties, legally speaking. An expert opinion has just been published saying in the case of Hungary, there are at least three major difficulties to properly spend EU funds in the country. One, there is no proper procurement procedure. All the money goes to the cronies of the autocratic regime. There is not even a free competition for these EU funds. So how can you properly distribute the money without a procedure? Second, if something illegal happens, there is no prosecutorial organization independent from the governments in place. So how can you expect any kind of procedure started against those who violate the EU law while distributing the money if there is no independent prosecutor office in place in Hungary. And finally, the third issue, if you do not have judicial independence, neither in Poland nor in Hungary, how can you have a dispute on EU money if you cannot be sure that the judges who are deciding on those issues are not influenced by the government?
0: Thank you very much. That was very helpful. You're also a Hungarian citizen, so what do you think Hungarian citizens who are pro-democratic values are expecting from the EU, and what is happening on the ground, and how do you see the relationship of citizens who are also a member of the
2: EU? You know, it's a very interesting observation that both in Hungary and Poland, the support of the EU is much higher than in old member states both in Poland and Hungary, the support of EU is around 70%. None of the old member states can show that kind of support of the EU, which means that the people are very much relying on the EU, very much accept the EU's values and principles. On the other hand, they do not have the proper information about the working of their own government. If there is no free speech in a country, which is the case in Hungary, there is no free media complaints by the EU regarding spending of EU funds. You cannot expect people to really have an informed opinion about the dispute between the government and the EU. The Hungarian government, and the same applies to the Polish government, are constantly using this kind of sovereignty card. We are the sovereign nation who are somehow occupied by the European Union as a kind of new Soviet Union. This rhetoric is very much used by both Viktor Orban and Jaroslav Kaczynski, which is just outrageous. This is a voluntary union. Hungary, with a referendum, agreed to join with all the mentioned advantages of the EU. How can you compare this with an an autocratic power of the Soviet Union? It's a not easy question to decide how citizens of Hungary and Poland can really contribute to change this situation between their own country and the EU. One issue they certainly can do, vote for those political parties, which are really EU-friendly parties and wanting to have the EU as a value community and not someone who is just willing the EU money for their own interests and not for the sake of the benefits of the people of the country. There are still hopes for more or less democratic elections, both in Hungary and Poland, Next year, there will be parliamentary elections in Hungary the following year in Poland. Although the Hungarian election law has been rigged in the last two elections, there is a possibility for the united opposition to win this election and change this course for an EU-friendly, liberal, democratic country. Going back to the democratic transition. I'm not arguing that we should go back to what happened in 89-90, but certainly we should reintroduce the values which are in compliance with the basic values of Article 2 of the European Treaty.
0: The EU is an institution which is continuously evolving. When it faces new issues such as the rule of law issues, it also exposes its loophole. And that's where come in the researchers, researchers from different civica universities also. What do you think is the role of researchers when it comes to building an institution such as the EU and dealing with the issues such as the rule of law?
2: Researchers in those countries and all around the EU has at least two main goals. One is to inform with their scientific tools. I'm, I'm not urging researchers to go to the streets, to stand up in every moment in daily newspapers on or radio broadcasts, explaining the situations. Sometimes it's needed. But what is really needed to convince a national audience, if it's possible, if there is free speech and if there is academic freedom, to convince the audience what are the values of the EU, what are the reality regarding those values in the given member states. And also convince the European audience that those are not countries where the people are not willing to be in the value community of the EU. They are. But you know, there are very powerful governments with their own tools to divert the people, both inside and outside. So scientific arguments and convincing scientific products, papers, books are important to contribute convincing both the people and politicians. The the last 10 years' experience also showed to me that it's not only the national audience which is not informed well. This is also the European audience, including European politicians who are not really well informed. What is happening in those countries? This homophobic law is an outrageous act, but this is not the first and probably even not the most important outrageous act by the Hungarian government. Somehow it went through, but with with more convinced scientifically based arguments, we can convince European politicians that this is not only the issue of those backsliding member states, The stake is also that we should have European Union with joint values altogether, because this rule of law crisis can easily destroy the entire European Union.
0: Thank you very much, Professor. That was a very, very good conversation. That was Professor Halamai, who talked about how the rule of law issue is one of the major threats to the EU as an institution. He also explained why the issue needs to be taken seriously, not just by the affected countries, but by all European citizens and political leaders. We touched upon two critical issues in this episode that have potential to change the trajectory of the EU in the coming years. Both experts have helped us understand the impact of these events, but the coming years will show us how these events will change the EU in the coming few decades. The second season of Over to Europe is produced by me, Aniket Narawad and edited by Ricardo Colella Civica Associate at Huddy School with the help of Civica Community Music in this episode was created by Kevin MacLeod This podcast is funded by the German Academic Exchange Service Subscribe and learn more at www.civica.eu slash over to europe Stay tuned for our next episode you <laughs>